Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. All right, well, during Eastertide, and it is the sixth Sunday of Easter, we are focusing on the supremacy of Christ. Wonderful theme. Just the greatness, the supremacy, the exaltation of Christ. And we're focusing on this by concentrating on two of Paul's epistles. Ephesians and Colossians. By the supremacy of Christ we mean that Jesus is Lord in just the most extreme way you can mean it. In the confession, Jesus is Lord, which is the great Christian confession, what we are really doing is pledging unrivaled allegiance to Jesus Christ. The word faith in the New Testament, pistis in the Greek, probably should be translated not so much faith as faithfulness or even allegiance that's really more the meaning it's not sort of a mental assent of belief but a commitment of allegiance or faithfulness so that we can see that the apostles teach us that we are saved through faithful allegiance to jesus christ my sermon this morning is entitled captive to no ism colossians chapter 2 Verse 1, Paul writes, For I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. I want their hearts to be encouraged and united in love so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am saying this so that no one may deceive you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. And I rejoice to see your morale and the firmness of your faith, your faithfulness, your allegiance in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, in the allegiance, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in Him, who is the head of every ruler and authority. All right, that's what we mean by the supremacy of Christ. That's what we mean by a a high theology of Christ. It's what we just see Paul saying here in Colossians chapter 2. Jesus Christ is, as Paul says, the revelation of the divine mystery. I mean, we first approach God as a mystery. We somehow know there is a creator. 
There is something beyond ourselves. There is something that sustains all that is, but this God is a mystery to us. But Jesus is the revelation of that mystery, which is all just me again saying that God is like Jesus. We don't really know what God is like until we really begin to know Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of the mystery of God. Jesus is the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, very God of very God, who has become human. So that in Jesus we find one who is fully God and fully human, revealing both what God is like and what humans are called to be. Paul says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Ooh, I like that. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You can memorize that. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Say it with me. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's a, that's a provocative statement. You know that means something. That's significant. Now, i tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that everything we need to know is written in the Bible. That's not what that means. When we say that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that doesn't mean that everything we need to know is written in the Bible. We must not make the mistake. Some people make it. Don't make it. Or the lifers don't make this mistake. Of conflating Jesus and the Bible into the same thing. They're not the same thing. The Bible, with an inspired reading, is the inspired witness to Jesus Christ, the one to whom we pledge our allegiance and place our faith in. The Bible is not the fullness of deity in book form. (laughs) Jesus Christ is the fullness of deity in bodily form, but the Bible is not the fullness of deity in book form because, quite simply, The Bible's not God. Jesus is. Jesus is the true ultimate word of God. Jesus is the revelation of the mystery of God. And Jesus is the interpretive key to the Bible. See, if you don't read the Bible through the lens of Jesus, you will remain, well, Paul says, a veil will be over you. And you won't understand what you're reading. You'll come up with wrong ideas out of the Bible unless you read it in the light of Christ. That's what Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians. Now, sometimes we'll hear people say, well, yeah, but the Bible is the only way to know Jesus. Heavens, no. <laughs> no. I mean, people say that like, you know, just like it's, like it's undebatable. Well, the Bible's the only way to know Jesus. Excuse me? Uh I've got good news. Jesus is alive. He's actually risen from the dead. Now, I mean, Jesus, Jesus has a history that we know of and is reported to us in the Scriptures, especially in the Gospels. But Jesus is not in prison there. I mean, the only way I can know Julius Caesar or George Washington is through a historical account. But Jesus is alive. He's risen He fills all things everywhere with himself. He's present to us. So, I mean, look, 
I grew up hearing Bible stories, and I, and I appreciate that. I grew up in church. But, you know, as I came into my teen years, really, it was, Jesus was just on the periphery of my life, probably not more significant than other historical figures. I was aware of Jesus, that he existed. You know, I could give you the basic outline of his life. But I can do that for George Washington and Julius Caesar, too. And then, November 9th, 19, 19, 1974, yeah, it was just back in the 20th century. I, I, yes, it was 1974. Um, I don't know how to say it. Jesus came to me. Jesus revealed himself to me. Sometimes I say it, Jesus just barged into my life. And, I mean... Jesus came to me. I don't know how else to say it. He came to me. And look, I can't prove it. I can only bear witness to it, but I do bear witness that Jesus revealed himself to me when I was 15 years old. Do you, you th Jesus came into my bedroom with its Led Zeppelin posters. You, some of you don't believe that Jesus will go into a Teenager's bedroom with Led Zeppelin posters, but I'm here to testify he will, because he did. Saved me. And it was because that I had encountered Jesus as risen and real that I picked up a Bible, and then I fell in love with the Bible. But I fell in love with the Bible because of my fascination with the one to whom the Bible points me. Jesus. The Bible is a precious and inspired witness that faithfully points us to Jesus Christ, but all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, not in the Bible. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, not the Bible. It's the role of the Spirit to lead us into the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden in Christ. Jesus says it like this, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. You know, we can only take so much at one time. Jesus says to his disciples, who've been with him for, the, for three years, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. Don't worry about it. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So the mystery of God, the fullness of the mystery of God is not exhausted in what is written in Scripture. For example, is slaves obey your masters the final word of God on the subject of slavery? No, we know that's not the case. Even though it's in the New Testament three times, not once, not twice, three times, slaves obey your masters. But it's not the final word because the risen Christ is going to say things to us that maybe at that time we weren't ready to hear, couldn't hear, but the spirit of truth will guide us into all truth, and all of that truth is hidden in Jesus Christ. So, in my, whatever top, I mean, I mean, the Bible doesn't mention nuclear weapons, or the internet, or quantum physics, and yet I think Christ can speak to all of that. Christ must speak to all of that if all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. George MacDonald, I love George MacDonald. He said it like this. You know George MacDonald? He was the 
the mentor of C.S. Lewis, although they never met because they lived at different times. But C.S. Lewis says, oh, George MacDonald, that's my master. He said, he's the one that taught me. And in Unspoken Sermons, George MacDonald writes this, Sad indeed would the matter be if the Bible had told us everything God meant us to believe. But herein a great wrong is done to the Bible. It nowhere lays claim to be regarded as the word, the way, the truth. The Bible leads us to Jesus, the inexhaustible and ever-unfolding revelation of God. It is Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, not the Bible, except as leading to Him. And so it's our task to discern by the Holy Spirit what Jesus is saying to us. And we do this always in consultation with Scripture. You know, Christ doesn't blatantly, you know, contradict the Bible or anything like that. I, I understand this is all risky. Because I'm saying, okay, Jesus wants to say stuff to you that you can't find written in the Bible. I know that sounds risky, but you're just going to have to take the risk. Or you, in effect, have a dead Christ who's not risen. Jesus has something to say. I mean, some of the most important moments of my life is when Jesus spoke to me. And sometimes it was by illuminating Scripture, but sometimes it wasn't. I mean, there was that moment. I know it was Jesus. When Jesus spoke to me and said, cross, mystery, eclectic, community, revolution. That was a big deal. And it, put, and it put me on a whole different direction that was needed. But it came in that moment. It was the living Christ speaking to me. And you can't make Jesus speak to you. But you can open to it. You can, you can provide, you, you can learn to sit with Jesus and let him speak to you. Or at, least, or at least provide the form in which Christ might speak. And one word from Jesus, that's what will change your life. That's what will change your life. Okay, Paul says this. The knowledge of God's mystery is Christ himself. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Continue to live your lives in him. And see that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, for you are complete in Christ. All right, we are complete in Christ, say amen, and captive to no ism. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. Now, Paul does not mean that we cannot use the tools of philosophy to think theologically. Indeed, uh, the early church used the tools of Greek philosophy to develop Christian theology. Christian theology can be accurately described as a synthesis of Hebrew revelation and Greek philosophy, philosophy being the tool by which they began to develop Christian theology. What Paul means is don't be taken captive by a particular philosophical ism. So, for example, in Paul's day, he would probably be alluding to the various options out there like Platonism, Aristotelianism, uh, Stoicism, Epicureanism, Skepticism, which was actually a philosophical school. Paul is saying don't let those things capture you. Don't be captured any of those isms. Because 
all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. See, there is no ism in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's in Christ. Now, many isms, like especially for the early church, Platonism, had some good things that they would borrow. We don't have to be against all isms. We don't have to say, oh, there's, there's no knowledge except explicit Christian knowledge. No, we don't do that. There are many isms that have good ideas that we can bless and even borrow. But we pledge our allegiance to Christ alone. Okay, now this, this I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay here, but I need to make it more plain. I need to really get down to Woodward. I don't know too many Christians who are captive to Platonism or Aristotelianism or Epicureanism or Stoicism. Those are all isms of the past. But I know plenty of Christians, look out now, who are captive to contemporary isms, conservatism, progressivism, fundamentalism. Scientism, denominationalism, and they've really pledged their allegiance to those isms. And then they want to make Christ line up with the ism because the ism is Lord. Well, no, we must remain captive to Christ alone. Because once we surrender to an ism, conservatism, progressivism, or whatever ism, it pushes us toward the absurd and cruel edges. See, if you say, I'm a, I'm a conservative, or if you say, well, i got to get, get left and right. Okay, this is left over, you're left, okay. I'm a progressive, and I'm committed to progressivism. Well, you're only worried about attacks from the left. You don't want to be out progressive, so you just keep moving further and further and further and further and further and further, because you don't care about what the conservatives say. You just don't want the progressives out, do you? And you're over here in the dark. Camera people hate it when I do that. Um, or, you know, you know what I'm going to do next. If you're over here and you say, ain't nobody going to out-conservative me. And it pushes you to the absurd and cruel edges. It tends to make you mean. So, we are captives of Christ alone. We do not surrender to another ism. Uh, and, and by the way, I'm not advocating, hear this here, I'm not advocating middle-of-the-roadism. But I'm advocating for radical allegiance to Jesus Christ. Why? Because He's Lord, and in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, at any given moment, at any given moment, a Christ-informed stand might look conservative or it might look progressive or whatever but there is no allegiance to the ism only allegiance to Christ for example for example uh, people think that uh, there are people who think that I am an inherent of pacifism this is not true uh, and I would know because I am me Pacifism is an ethical position regarding war that a person can adopt independent of Christ. Well, that's not what I did. I mean, if I have rethought war, it's been because of Jesus, not because of anybody's ism. Uh, 
as, as daring as it is, but I feel daring today. Uh, I, I began to rethink war when Jesus spoke to me about it. When Jesus spoke to me about it. If you, if you want to know what I'm talking about, just, it's in the first chapter of A Farewell to Mars. But the only, see, the only label, I don't like labels, I really don't like labels. Soren Kierkegaard was right when he said, when you label me, you negate me. Oh, he's one of those. He's one of those. So we can just put him in a box and forget about him. Tape him up, put him in a box, he's one of those. He's a progressive, he's a, he's a conservative, he's a, he's a pacifist, he's a militarist, or whatever. You just, you just, I don't like labels, and I don't willingly adopt any of them, except one, except one, Christian. I will take the label Christian. Um, meaning someone who is devoted to Christ and seeks to imitate Christ. Not that I do it very well, but I'm trying. I would, I would, say, I would say I do pretty well in being devoted to Christ. I do eh, imitating Christ. That's a struggle. That's, a, that's ongoing. My friend Joe Beach says, you know, if Jews can be Jewish, how come Christians can't be Christianish? A lot of pressure to say, I'm a Christian, I'm Christ-like. I'm trying. I want to be. I'm Christianish. So what I say is, no, I'm not a pacifist. I'm a Christian. And now we can have the discussion on how Christ informs us on the topic of war. That's all I say. Now, let me speak a little bit even more directly, and hopefully pastorally, to our present situation. We are living through a time in America where politics is becoming infused with religious energy. And this never turns out well. This always goes bad. This is dangerous. Don't go down that road. It's a road away from Jesus. And as I said, it'll make you mean. If you bring religious energy to your politics, it won't take six weeks. You'll be mean. Jesus will not endorse some other politics for one simple reason. He has his own. He has his own. He calls it the kingdom of God. And it's characterized by love. That is, that is the outstanding characteristic of the politics of God, which is just another term for the, the kingdom of God. The politics of Jesus is a politics of love, love, love. Love for God, love for the other, the neighbor, and even love for the enemy. That's the nature of the politics of Jesus, and that's the only politics he will endorse. I mean, I just, I'll just come out and say it. I'm going to be blunt. Uh, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are not hidden with the Democrats or the Republicans. They don't have it. Now, I mean, I don't, I don't mind, you know, we, we, politics should be a you know, debate about policy, about what's the best public policy. But don't bring allegiance to it, because your allegiance is pledged to Christ. So it's, I mean, I'm preaching my Anastasis icon again, because I'm going to do this every Sunday it's here. Th this is Jesus. And this, this is where your allegiance is. Not to the right or to the left, 
but to the one who holds all things together. And notice, see, when you, when you, when you bring religious energy to a political position, very quickly what you do is you push people away. You're on the wrong team. You're on the wrong side. You're wrong. And you get ugly and you get mean and you say hateful things and you demonize and you're pushing them. This is the opposite of what Jesus is bringing them together. He's saying, come together right now over me. He's bringing them together. Jesus selected and appointed 12 apostles. Many, many disciples, but he had 12 apostles that were specifically chosen to have great intimacy with him and to carry the message of the gospel to the nation. So that our gospel, in fact, is an apostolic gospel. So choosing the 12, it was always going to be 12 because of the 12 tribes of Israel. And now, in, now Israel's being reconstituted around the Messiah, Christ. And it's going to then reach out beyond the Jewish world into the Gentile world through the apostolic efforts. So the selection of the 12 apostles is a big deal. And that's why Jesus spent all night in prayer. Spent all night in prayer. Spent a whole night in prayer before making his selection. He's got to get this right. So he's hearing from the Father who to select. And among the 12 apostles that Jesus appointed, there were Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Simon the Zealot, Matthew the tax collector. These two men were at the extreme polar opposites in the political world. Simon was a zealot. Who are the zealots? This is an insurgency. Remember, Israel's occupied by the Romans. And this is a guerrilla violent insurgency that is wanting to drive out the Romans. They're saying, you guys don't belong here. This is not your land. God gave it to us. And you just being a big old empire coming in here and, you know, having your way. And so the zealots uh, were lashing out. They couldn't take on the Roman army head on. That, that would be a futile cause. But, you know, you know what they do. I mean, it's asymmetrical warfare. They had their daggers. And they would assassinate not so much Romans. Again, that was too difficult. Mostly Jewish collaborators. Those that were collaborating with the Romans. They, would, they were assassinating them. This kind of stuff goes on today, you know. So that's Simon. He's a zealot. Matthew, he's a tax collector. Matthew is a target of Simon. I mean, Simon belongs to a movement that assassinates people like Matthew. Whereas Matthew, as a tax collector for the Roman government, relies upon Roman soldiers to subdue and root out people like Simon, zealots. I mean, you could say this is like Jesus choosing Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz, but it's a lot more extreme than that. I mean, it's extreme. These people, within, within their own Jewish world, they could not be farther apart politically. It is safe to assume that they hated one another until they come together over Jesus. 
So, do you think that Jesus choosing Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector was just sort of like some sort of weird accident, coincidence? Oh, look here, we got a tax collector and a zealot. This will be interesting. No, it wasn't an accident. It was completely on purpose. Jesus is demonstrating a different kind of kingdom. Now, did Simon the Zealot hope that eventually Jesus would get around to taking up the Zealot cause? Probably. I mean, at least when he's, when he's first chosen and beginning, I think probably secretly he's thinking, yeah, Jesus will come around one of these days. And eventually he'll see that our cause is just and we have no alternative but to rise up against Roman tyranny. And did Matthew hope that Jesus would eventually endorse Roman law and order? That Jesus would just come out and say, look, we've got to have law and order, and so I'm endorsing the Roman law and order. Was he hoping that eventually Jesus would come around and do that? Probably. But Jesus did not join or endorse Simon or Matthew's politics. And neither did Jesus offer a middle-of-the-road compromise. Instead, Jesus called Simon and Matthew and everyone else to an alternative, a radical alternative, the radical alternative of the kingdom of God built upon allegiance to Jesus. So it's not right or left. Right or left is not the grid that Christians should be plotted on. We are to be above not right or left, above. I mean, we'll see this next Sunday, Colossians 3.1. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Are you right or are you left? He said, no, we're something altogether different. We're above, we're seated with Christ, we're seeking to love like He loves. The radical alternative of the kingdom of God is predicated upon just absolute unrivaled allegiance to Jesus. We're captive to no ism. We serve no ism. We serve Christ. And what Matthew and Simon eventually learn is that this kingdom will not be built upon zealot daggers or Roman swords. The kingdom is built by the cross, by sacrificial love. Love for God love for neighbor, even love for enemy. The kingdom of God announced and enacted by Jesus was and still is simultaneously a peaceable renunciation of violent revolution and a prophetic critique of violent empire. It's the alternative. In other words, Jesus calls both revolutionary zealots and colluding tax collectors to repent. And if Simon and Matthew will rethink everything in the light of the one to whom they are pledging their allegiance, the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, they'll both find what they're looking for. One thinks it's, you know, in the far right. One thinks it's in the far left. One thinks it's in Rome. One thinks it's in revolution. It's actually way above all of that. In Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus was never going to join some other cause, and he still won't. Because Jesus only serves the cause of God, 
and nothing has changed. Karl Barth, writing in the 1930s in Germany, said, God cannot serve, God can only rule. Now what he means, in, he doesn't mean that God in Christ can't be a humble servant because that in fact is the truth. But what he means in the context of what he's writing, he says, it's that God cannot serve some other political interest. He can only rule. He has his own. So, so Jesus is never going to serve as a mascot for Democrats or Republicans. He's just not going to. He's not going to. And, it, and if you have a Jesus that is a mascot, you know, endorsing, 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 that's not Jesus. That's a projection of your own deified politics. And that's a fancy word for idol. And so Jesus is not going to belong to some other cause. He belongs to the cause of God. And he still says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, which means rethink everything because this, this alternative kingdom is within reach. If you'll pledge your allegiance to me, be captive to noism, and in the light of Christ, in whom are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, learn to rethink everything. In Christ, we are captive to noism. In Christ, we are set free to love one another like Jesus loves us. Amen. Stand with me. And it's time to come to the table of the Lord. We'll say it right now, even before we... I'm going to say it because I always say this. This is the table. Not of the church, not of an ism, not of a denomination, certainly not of a political party. This is, this is the table of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love Him or those that aspire to love Him more. So we're going to come. Those that have much faith, those that have little, we're all on a journey. Those who have been here often, those that your first time here, those who have tried to follow and those of us who have failed and we all fail, we're coming because it's the Lord Himself who invites us. Just as He invites Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, he's saying, come on, guys, come together right now over me. Come together over me. And that's what we're doing at this table. So let's confess our faith. First of all, let's confess our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now let's confess our sins. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins. 
and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. This is the table where we commune with the body and blood of Christ. I mean, we're members of His body, you understand? We're brought into His body. Not the body politic of elephants or donkeys, but the body of Christ, who has its own politics. I just can't stop preaching it. Called the kingdom of God. The body of Christ, broken for you. The blood of Christ, shed for you.